welcome to this episode of the Transformed podcast, hosted by me, Holly Rigby. Transformed is a new organisation run by teachers for teachers, aiming to explore the big questions facing educators today. In this podcast episode, we're going to be talking about grammar schools. We are joined by two guests from very different ends of the political spectrum, but who are both united by the idea that grammar schools have no place in our education system today. So, first of all, we're delighted to welcome Melissa Ben, a writer and activist whose latest book, Life Lessons, The Case for National Education Service, is out right now, and I can highly recommend it. Uh, and she was until recently the chair of Comprehensive Futures, an organisation dedicated to campaigning against grammar schools. Good evening, Melissa. Good evening, Holly. And we are also joined by Mark Lehane, founder of the Bedford Free School and now director of the campaign group Parents and Teachers for Excellence. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Holly. Uh, we are also finally joined in this episode by Paddy DeClaire, a Transformed editor who is also a secondary school science teacher. Good evening, Paddy. Good evening, Holly. Um, that was like a roll call of like, yes, miss, everybody's here. Um, and we're all here. So we are going to start today by thinking a little bit about the historical context of grammar schools. Um, most of our listeners will know what a grammar school is, but they might not know quite how they entered our system and play uh, quite a controversial role um, in our school ecology today. So, um, Melissa, if you can start us off um, from your perspective, you know, why do you think grammar schools were first introduced? Well, I think if we were really going to look into history, we'd have to say there have been grammar schools, schools called grammars and selective schools in our system since the 19th century and before. But I think it's helpful to start with the 1944 Education Act, which was a tremendous advance in terms of the establishment of universal secondary education. There was actually nothing in the Act that said... Um, described the basis on which schools were going to be set up, but it was decided by that... Um, uh, wartime coalition because it actually wasn't the 45 government it was the wartime coalition that they were going to set it up on the on a tripartite basis mm. of selective schools secondary moderns and technical schools and as everyone says when they talk about that moment the technical schools never really took off for reasons of resources local authorities didn't want to spend money or didn't have the money to spend on the things that you needed so it became a sort of very clear, uh, I don't know if the word is bipartite, no it's not, a binary system mm. and basically 20% of people, there was an 11 plus, 20% of children, largely of the professional and the affluent class got through the 11 plus and 80% didn't. And back then, unlike now, if you went to a grammar school, you were on a completely different track in terms of qualifications and what you could do and going on to university and so really going to a secondary modern was kind of assigning you at the age of 11 to a pretty no hoper future that's that's my summary of why well that's what happened yeah and so what would you kind of say was the effect of the tripartite system at the time? Because the reason some people say it was good at the time was that it generated kind of big social mobility, um, you know, for working class children that otherwise wouldn't have had an academic education. Um, would you agree with that analysis? Not, or? not really. No. Not really, no. I mean, I think John Goldthorpe, who's the great expert on social mobility, says that the post-war move towards greater professional jobs was largely as a result of changes in the economy. Mm. I mean, there's no question that there were... Um, significant individuals and groups who got a 
educational and social leg up through the grammar schools. You know, you often meet them. They tend to be of a certain generation now. Andrew Neil's a good example. <coughs> um, people like um, <laughs> Margaret Forster, the writer. You often meet people. Um, Alan Bennett is another example. People who really their lives were transformed because they went to grammar schools and they then went on usually to Oxford and Cambridge. But on the whole, it, it didn't um, advance the social and economic situation mm. of most, certainly most working class children or most lower middle class children. Mm. I don't know if Mark agrees with that. Actually. No, I mean, all I was going to add was I, I think uh, um, people did it for all the right reasons as well. I think they're very excited as we're coming towards the second half of uh, World War Two, and they're aware that the, and I'm sort of using the phrase 20 years before it was used, but the white heat technology, they knew we needed a, a much better educated workforce. Um, so they felt that the tripartite system was one way of getting a lot more people uh, particularly in the technical schools, which never really took off. And they were modelling themselves on, on a lot of European countries, which which they felt were a lot more egalitarian, had a lot more equity within their system. So although we might look back on it now and think, oh my God, what were they thinking? I think they had some quite ambitious and I think enlightened hopes for what it was going to create. But the, the, the actual sort of implementation of it meant it didn't work out like that. Um, and what would you think of the kind of this point about um, grammar schools created social mobility? People talk about a golden age of grammar school education, don't they? That that's why it still kind of keeps coming back to our political agenda, that there was this post-war time when all these children... How much does that chime with your understanding of that? Well, it's, it's really hard to unpick the impact that it was the grammar schools had on those uh, young people going through it, but also the impact of the remodelling uh, of the whole economy that was going on at that point. There was a huge amount of jobs coming online to rebuild the country, uh, and you know, was it that? Was it the opening up of the professions and all the other things going on that made the difference, mm. or was it the grammar schools? It's just really hard to tell. That's yeah, right, I, think, I think we'd sort of agree there, wouldn't we? That it was probably as much the economy. I don't think I would agree with Mark's argument that it was an idea about equity. I mean. My understanding after years of thinking about our system is that there's a very profound belief in schools as shaping your class identity. And I think the grammar schools, the grammar secondary modern divide was a continuation of an idea that there was to be an elite either through money or brains and the rest were to be kind of dealt with. And I think you can still see that belief in our system now, even in our comprehensive system. So that's mm. my understanding of it. One more thing it's useful to say though, there was discussion in the pre-war period about what what would happen later and what should happen later. And there was discussion of, um, it was not called comprehensive then, it was called a multilateral system. So ideas about comprehensive education were around pre-1939. I mean, obviously mm. people didn't know there was going to be a great war. Um, and it's interesting that after a war that there wasn't more of a drive towards equity given the welfare state and so on, but mm. there wasn't. Okay, so there's a kind of general agreement that, um, you know, Mark, you said that the grammar schools didn't live up to the ambitions of their kind of founders. Melissa, you said that you kind of disagreed with why they were, you know, introduced in the first place. Um, but obviously most grammar schools were phased out later on, weren't they? Um, sort of why did that happen and what impact did that have on the system when most of them were phased out kind of later on? Well, I think it was a a huge moment of reform. I would also call it, almost call it a peaceful revolution and it was a product of a number of different things coming together i think we have to put the sort of economic boom of the 60s in there uh cultural changes of the 60s uh but it was also a number of people 
and groups campaigning against the 11 plus. There was a quite important report, the Newsom report, 1963, which questioned the idea of fixed intelligence. Because we've got to remember that the 11 plus was promoted by this guy called Cyril Burt, who was lauded by the establishment, but was found to have faked his results. He literally made up two researchers who he said had helped him with his um, study of separated twins. So he believed that intelligence was fixed at birth and all you needed to do was sort children out aged 10 to 11. So lots of criticisms of that. Also, Tory parents who thought they their children would automatically go into grammar schools rebelled and so they would go to meetings with the then Education Secretary Edward Boyle and just say this isn't on why should our children be put in second rate schools so all these things came together and it was a bipartisan moment where the Conservatives and Labour both agreed that this system couldn't hold I have to say the Conservatives reverted to type quite soon after but we'll come on to that Mark would you kind of broadly agree with that history as Tory parent in the room if I can describe you <laughs> taken Tory yeah yeah. Um, well, yeah we can't really argue with that the, the, the numbers make it quite clear and I'm sure you'll correct me if, if this is an apocryphal story Melissa but didn't Margaret Thatcher's education secretary close down sign the order to close down more grammars than nearly every other, any other education secretary I think she did it just wasn't yeah. popular it hadn't yeah. captured the it hadn't delivered what had been promised uh, and of course what I think we'll come on to later on is what's really interesting now is I think the arguments against selective education because that's really what we're talking about I think selective education are very different now coming from the centre right um, to what they were back in the 70s. In what way would you say they're different? Because we've kind of looked at, okay, well, this is why they were there, this is why they got phased out, but they're still existing today, right? So what's how, what's the shift in the argument being from what we've just talked about to how people view grammar schools today, do you think? I, th I think for me, um, the idea of promoting selection at 11 into a certain kind of school so that only a limited number of people can benefit from what goes on in that school would be like giving everyone a gramophone when you could give everyone access to iTunes and have access to you know all the music and history like if the fact that you could give everyone a grammar school style education and we can debate about what that might mean <laughs> I think if you can do that you should why limit it to just 15 20 25 percent it seems retrograde and we're going to look at what maybe uh, a grammar school style education is and whether that's a kind of beneficial thing. But I think, first of all, I think it'd be good to sort of get a sense of why your particular agreement is like on the fact that we shouldn't have the 11 plus, that mm. we shouldn't select um, by ability. Yeah. Um, so, Melissa, do you want to... I always say so-called ability yeah. because I think <laughs> I think the term, for, for those of us who be pro-comprehensive education, uh, ability is a problematic term. I think there's so many things wrong with the 11 plus. I don't think you should decide anyone's future at what is in many cases the age of 10. Um, the test itself is clearly influenced by both background and tutoring. And, you know, it's been shown over and over again. I mean, now the research is overwhelming that if you have money in one form or another, um, your your child's privately educated children are much more likely to get into grammars. And I always find that particularly kind of offensive that people pay up to a certain point in order to get a free, separate, selective state education. That seems wrong. What happens to the schools that 
the, the non-selective schools, nobody talks about secondary moderns anymore. In the, in the current world that we're in now with our really complicated school system and everybody is called the, you know, the stretch academy and the reach <laughs> high and the aim high. You know, most secondary <laughs> moderns in, in those selective counties sound absolutely amazing. But the truth is they suffer from, they have problems with recruitment of teachers, demoralisation, far higher number of children with special needs of particular kinds. And locally, they're often considered the hard-working but not as good schools. I just don't think that is a way to run a modern system. And I, I, I'm sure Mark, I mean, we're, we're still agreeing. So we, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think, but I agree with you sort of, um, and, you know, declaration of, of interest here. I don't talk it very often about it very often because it wasn't relevant to my upbringing. But um, I grew up near Reading. Now, where I grew up, there weren't grammar schools, but there's a boys' grammar school and a girls' grammar school in Reading, mm. and no one did the 11 plus generally. They were just there, and for some reason, and you can decide why that was, I decided I wanted to have a go, and and I smashed it. Uh, I didn't know till years <laughs> later. I didn't know till years later that I came top of that cohort, but I left after six weeks. Oh, you went to the grammar for six weeks and left, and and went to my local comp where my older brother and sister had gone, and that was absolutely the right school for me. And that's not why I'm anti-grammars like that. that that's to be very, very clear, but that's just everything's out on the table. Um, Can I ask why you left after six weeks? Just, what was that, it? That's, I, I was just a neurotic child, and I'd, I'd gone from the local lovely junior school down the road from me to having to get on a bus <laughs> and go into <laughs> Reading with all the bigger boys. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, you know, and, and my dad was heartbroken when I left because he was really excited for me. My dad had been a teacher at the same school in Maidenhead for 40 years that started off as a grammar school and then became a comp. Um, my mum just wanted me to be happy, you know, that old cliche. And I absolutely flew that... I think one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about comprehensive education was my own experience was phenomenal of it. But I was a very bright, whatever that word means, enthusiastic, able boy who had a very supportive family. So the comprehensive school, I don't know whether it was a good comprehensive school or not. I just know it worked really well for me. So to come back to the thing we we're talking about, which is, you know, why have people kind of gone off grammars? It just seems crazy. I have not seen any evidence that you can select for whatever innate ability mm. there may be. Because there's no doubt that we're all on different normal distribution curves in terms of different types of attainment. But whether you can assess at age 10 or 11, I've not seen any evidence of that yeah. at all. So we're assessing too early. We're assessing on a narrow range of things. But it's more important than that for me. Actually, if you think so, every child has an entitlement to a particular... Um, uh, and uh, a set of cultural references that immersion in the best has been thought, said and done and stuff. And that's what we, uh, mm. Melissa and I may disagree possibly on what I mean by that. But if that's every child's entitlement, they've all got to get it. They've uh, all got yeah. to have it. And that's for me why I want grammar schools for all. Um, to, and I think we don't need to select to give them that. Yeah. So I think um, it's really interesting what you're saying because um, I just want to pick up a bit on, before we get onto the best that's been thought and said, a bit about the issue around ability because um, it sounds like you're saying that, well, there is this such a thing as kind of ability, but actually we're selecting too young, whereas Melissa, you're saying there's no time at any point when you would, when it's right to select by ability. Melissa, would that be a fair analysis of what you think about ability? Oh, I think the whole so-called ability debate is really complicated. I, I think I'm just pro the idea that the sort of idea of hope and moving towards the future and not being not fixing children in any way not saying you are this and you are this because i know from my own experience i know from my experience as a parent that once you tell young people who they are and what they can do they think that's who they are and what they can do i think there is a very important point before we move on to to these more slightly tricky questions about the emotional impact of failing the 11 plus and also what's less talked about 
is the emotional impact of passing it. Mm. <laughs> because, I, I mean, I'm really interested in your story, Mark, actually, and I, I shall be thinking about that, uh, no doubt referring to it, in future, <laughs> future <laughs> debates. But I think, I've, you, I think there's something terrible about saying to a child, you're mm. second rate. I mean, I, I just I, think got... it's totally wrong. And I, but I think there's also something not good about saying to a child, you're, you're not even an adolescent and you're kind of at the top range of something. Mm. I, don't think, I think that's limiting in its own way. And, and just to be clear, I wasn't sort of suggesting that there is this fixed um, potential that people have. What I'm saying is just by definition, we're all on a normal distribution of be it IQ or whatever. Um, and thus, I don't think there's a particular bunch of people. Most people are not particularly talented or unbelievably intelligent mm. in a significant way more than the rest of society. So I don't think we need to educate them in a different place. But more importantly, I think every child should be exposed to a really rich curriculum and as soon as you start separating kids out into different schools you will get quite different experiences and for me that's where the equity and moral um, stuff comes in and that's where you know my hero and I'm sure your heroes in this room Michael Gove made such a compelling <laughs> case for those people on the centre right he changed the game whilst Michael Gove was education secretary he may have said his foot was hovering over the pedal of grammar school expansion but he never did it because he knew it was more important to get every single child getting that rich curriculum rather than just for a few. And all the time you have grammars, it will be just that few that get it. But, you know, it's interesting because I think the argument about comprehensive and grammar school education is, it's a bit like the Brexit argument. It's one taking place <laughs> within the Tory party. I mean, we'll come on to, to Labour later. But you're absolutely right. I mean, Michael Gove was very odd in saying his his foot was over the pedal <laughs> now, I'm not saying I, I, I was about to qualify that yeah. odd in his attitude to the grammars which are grammars are great but as Sam Friedman his special advisor said on the day that he was sacked by Cameron because he was unpopular with the public he said Michael Gove will be remembered for the fact he normalised comprehensive education in the Tory party yeah. now the truth is Theresa May then came in and yeah. denormalised it so this is one of those arguments within the Tory party that we've the rest of the country has got to suffer continually um, I'm but not actually, talking to you particularly as yeah, a Tory no no, but. I hear that. no but actually no but I, I don't think that's fair to say that because actually if it was just within the Conservative Party Tony Blair in his 13 years would have got rid of them and he couldn't because no matter what the people in this room think um, grammar schools whenever you poll families about it when you describe what they're giving their kids are incredibly popular and when you talk to lots of people who are skeptical about selective schools they would still send their own children there I, I'm, you and I are quite odd and in that we probably could have done but chose not to send our own kids there but most people would and so for me it's about how do we get the debate on to convincing people that this alternative is so much better mm. rather than criticising them for choosing it for their own children Well I think that the, 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 I've had endless debates about polling and what it shows about parents and what they like it really depends what question you ask if you ask a parent would you be happy for your child to be told at 10 that they're not as clever as their neighbour you get a different answer if you say would you like your child to go to the best school in the area even though there's not a discussion of what the best school is so I think we have to be a little careful about polling if you say to parents would you like your child to go to a really good school everybody says yes <laughs> I think, a lot, I think one of the problems is that a lot of people, particularly in selective areas, it's really odd. It's like those three counties that select completely, Bucks, Kent and Lincolnshire, parents in those counties, I've, our group Comprehensive Future has done so much work on this, they don't know what a comprehensive system looks like. Mm. They don't know what a really, really good, all 
in i prefer to call it rather than all ability school looks like they have they're like they're living in another place so i think that's part of the problem mm. Yeah, so we're getting on to really um, what should we do about grammar schools, aren't we? And, and Mark, you're kind of touching on the fact that, well, actually now there's a growing consensus that we need to make comprehensive schools really, really good, um, but parents are kind of backlashing. And this might be where the kind of point, like this might be where we start to have some more disagreements because um, I think it'd be fa fair to say, Mark, that you would be against just abolishing the 11 plus, that actually it's about kind of making comprehensive schools really, really good across the board, which would you say they currently aren't would that be a fair kind of well i wouldn't comment on the existing comprehensive schools what i would say is the amount of political capital and we have to be realistic about what we're dealing with at any given time the amount of political effort it would take to scrap the existing 163 or whatever it is grammar mm. schools i just don't think it's worth it i think we're better given that education secretaries have a limited lifespan um, in terms of <laughs> sorry let me start again they're not around for long sorry I'm, actually maybe they do um, we all have a limited lifespan apparently that's true you're right Melissa let me start again given that they tend not to be around for long um, then I think we're much better off focusing on things which will make a bigger difference and um, and I don't think we're going to shut them down if Tony Blair couldn't do it in 13 years a typical education secretary can't can't do that. So let's focus on things which really can make a difference to all the children. And and there was some interesting research that I think you guys published last week that lots of grammar schools aren't filling up straight away. No. They are having to lo lower their um, pass marks. And and actually, my my wife, another sort of anecdote. She's a Kent girl. Um, she will say that going to Chisholm Grammar School transformed her life, given her particular family context um, but we also know that there's grammar schools and there's grammar schools mm, you know mm. there's the inner Kent grammar schools in uh, in western Kent and then there's the coastal grammar schools and, and there's different yeah. things going they're on there they're super selective and ordinarily all, selective all sorts. so for me I'd much rather focus on something that can have a much bigger impact on far more children quickly and that's why one of the things I'm excited about doing with PTE is I love getting into non-selective schools in selective areas because you can really make a difference very, very quickly. Mm. And guess what? It's those things which make any school great. Focus on the culture. Get a really positive culture first. Sort out behaviour. Make it really positive and constructive. Um, and then move on to the curriculum because that's the big difference often between what we associate with grammar schools in inverted commas and your traditional comprehensives and I'm by the way those of you listening I'm making quote marks in the air <laughs> around that so that no one thinks I'm being critical but I think they're the big things and you can do them in any kind of school mm. and Melissa obviously comprehensive future has really campaigned hasn't it for the abolition of the 11 plus yeah um, I think the phasing out of the 11 plus is what we would like to see and um, basically we're, we're committed to making the arguments that have not changed over 45 50 years and I would be critical of Tony Blair he 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 didn't act when he had a big majority and he he could have done something but you know I've come to think we're looking at all of this in completely the wrong way I think our political crisis is, uh, culture is in crisis and a lot of things are going to change and need to change and I I also think and I think Mark and I sitting here in this way agreeing on a lot of things is a symptom of something else there's a consensus on a lot of problems in our society and things that need to change today we've heard Damien Green talking about social care that's another good example of something has changed we see a lot of cross-party working on Brexit for example I think we need to stop thinking in terms of the short-term political cycle what did New Labour do what did Michael Gove do what did whoever followed Michael Gove they're not quite as as, uh, hadn't made such an impact. Oh, that's I think not fair on Nikki. <laughs> oh no, I'm sure. No, 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 God I, bless them. No, no, I think it's absolutely fair to say Michael Gove made a very big impact. Um, but the point is, I'm kind of sort of bored of of 
election cycles, what can we do? And that always means you're quite right in a way. Oh, you can't do anything in five years. So let's just make those other schools good. I, re I really don't agree with you. I think we need to have a really big conversation and a political party needs to start it about our entire school landscape. That's what I've come to think. And I mean, I think private schools are in there because there's clearly something terribly wrong about that 7%. And I think selective schools are in there. And I think that that conversation should go on. I don't know whether we should have even citizens' juries or get people, get everybody involved in what kind of school system do we want? What do we want our children to learn? What kind of funding do we want? Who do we want to run it? Do we want free schools run by people like Mark or do we want some kind of local authority or whatever? It, just as Finland did, I'm not saying we're like Finland, we're completely different, but they, the one thing they did was have a long conversation over 15, 20 years. They a got an agreed consensus across left and right because I also come to believe education is not as political as we all make agreed. it yep. they got an agreed consensus and that meant their system has held and also has become I would say because it's that mix of sort of government and local, national government local government and professionals it's held and has been able to be flexible with changing conditions like you know increased migration and so on the kind of things that have totally flawed us in many ways because we're always so fragmented so you know, I do think we should phase out selection. I, I think it's a difficult one for Labour because I don't think a party that is for the many, not the few, can justify a policy that is for the few and not the many. Sorry, I banged the table there. Um, <laughs> but I think we need something bigger. Um, I'm going to bring in um, Paddy now. Um, so what what do you think about this argument about um, the 11 plus? Obviously, Melissa's saying we need a much broader conversation. Mark's saying what we need to sort of really transform and make um, all schools exciting. What would be your perspective um, as, as, a, as a teacher? Well, it's fascinating listening to the debate. Um, it, it, it really is great to hear. And it's great to hear so much consensus on it. And it's it's great to hear this idea of um, sort of fixed ability and, and measuring at 11 is being scrapped by both of you. Um, just as a teacher, I know that you, you get a kid in year seven and they're absolutely fantastic. And then by the time they're in year 11, they're just a completely different kid and vice versa. You might get someone like that. There's this one girl I'm thinking of in particular. She uh, was an immigrant from East Europe and she spoke almost no English when she came to us in school. And like a few years later, she's just absolutely stellar. And I just shudder to think what, mm. what it might have been like if she uh, took the 11 plus and failed and was told she was a failure and then had to, I don't know, sort of struggle on from there. And, you know, Michael Michael Gove talking about what was it, the tyranny of, of low expectations. I, ju I just wonder what you would have expected of someone like her. And I, I think it's brilliant that, you know, he too is putting comprehensive schooling back to the forefront. Um, just, I suppose, one thing again that I, I think it's brilliant to, to think long term and we, we can't just be thinking, OK, what can we do in, in two months or in two years or, or in the short political cycles? I mean, we have to lo last a little bit longer than the attention span of the newspapers, I think, when mm. we're talking about an education. I mean, for one child, it's what it's 14 years they spend at least in, in just schools alone. Um, and I do, I do also worry a little bit, Mark, about just when you say about changing the culture of a school, uh, it just rings a, a sort of alarm bells. It reminds me of sort of academization and hearing from teachers and schools locally about uh, someone sort of coming in and dictating and saying, OK, no, we're doing it completely differently. This is the way it's going to be done. It, it sounds a bit top down. I wonder if you could expand on what you mean by changing the culture in schools. So let me, if, before I do that, let me just pick up on <coughs> the idea of being consensus, because actually if, if we think back to pre-2010 election, 
there was a huge amount of consensus actually across the three main parties about the kind of structural and um, operational changes that, that they thought schools should see, which is why, because Michael Gove was building on a lot of the Blair legacy and the, the Lord Adonis Ooh. legacy. He, d- he put his foot on the pedal. I mean, you know, that yeah, 2010 yeah, Academies <laughs> Act would not have been brought in by Labour. Hence, hence, I, I, said, hence I said building on it, not necessarily <laughs> continuing yeah, I mean, building, it. So, like piling on um, it. But the other reason I'm really wary about is trying to get too much consensus, mm. and, and, and I, I do shudder want to hear about anything about citizens, juries or whatever is. Do you know what? There's there's five people in this room. Okay, four of us talking and a silent observer. <laughs> if if you asked us to write down without sharing notes the why of education, mm. what's the purpose of education? Do you know what? all five of us would write something quite different? Mm. And actually, I think that diversity is really important. Not just because it's enshrined within the United Nations Charter on Human Rights, which is really important probably to all of us in here, but because fundamentally we will all have different views on what the purpose is. There'll be a lot in common, like we've got a lot in common in here. There will also be differences, and we have to reflect and respect that within state education. If we want people in state education, because if you try and dictate it too much, you're talking about top down, people will pull their kids out and home educate. And, I'm, and I, I, I can speak about that from personal experience of family context, where if you try and lay down too many rules, people will go elsewhere. And I want an inclusive education system where everyone's in. Um, and just to kind of yeah, draw these... What worries me about diversity is that diversity often is, a, is a, an underwriting of inequalities, which we've never dealt with. We have the most segregated and unequal school system and academisation and introduction of free schools, I don't think has done much to change that. So I think let's, let we, it's good. We're not, we, don't, we don't like what each other's saying too much that's good <laughs> that's good <so> <laughs> that's but in good. terms of the culture thing just quickly we're talking about culture in schools yeah can we just i just want to kind of like we'll come we'll definitely come to that in a second so basically what it sounds like is that mark your issue is that the way that grammar schools are spoken about by the left is basically that we should abolish them right that's your main issue that um that wouldn't be the right way to go about it you know let a thousand flowers bloom um and that would that would create a good school system and I think, Melissa, we kind of, I mean, I, I completely agree that we want a much bigger, longer term, yeah. broader vision. But we are within the context that yeah. we might, for the first time, have a Labour government who is going to draw up a manifesto that might have something like that on there. Right. So within that context of, you know, would you be happy if, you know, Angela Rayner put in her manifesto, right, the 11 plus you know, will be phased out un- under a Labour yeah. government. I mean, I mean, Comprehensive Futures, which has done a lot of work on this, set, has proposed and looked at county by county basis um, ideas for phasing out the 11 plus over a 10 to 15 year period. So you would do it very gently so that people who were in the those those grammar schools would get to the end of their education so it would apply more. To, I mean, it completely screws up the primary system in those counties, you know, where children are being divided early on. I mean, two things worry me about Mark's position. He's against 11 plus, but he wouldn't get rid of it because it would be a waste of political capital. So that's a little worrying. And I think the second thing to say is that I don't think the debate is over in this country. I mean, Theresa May has not really got a domestic agenda because everything's paralysed. But if she does have a domestic agenda, it is over the return of the 11 plus and expansion of grammar schools and the thing that worries me about it and knowing how our media culture works because fundamentally the newspapers and the BBC and so on are pretty pro the status quo her plan to have more disadvantaged children in grammar schools runs well as a headline but we have looked at the proposals of schools because they've already had to in order to get access to the selective school expansion fund They've had to put 
proposals forward and we've examined what it will mean and it will be a tiny increase in percentage of children on free school meals and there's a tiny amount already so I think we need to watch out for that and I'd want your listeners and all the teachers who are out there to just don't fall for that expansion with more disadvantaged children because it's not going to happen and it's just yeah Great, yeah. Um, how would you respond to that, Mark? The kind of the, the conservative current policy is expand because it's good for social mobility. You also kind of advocate social mobility, but what, what? How do you respond to the idea that grammar school should be expanded, and the fact that the conservatives don't seem to be sharing your opinion at the moment that actually it's not the right thing to do to even have them in the system? It's it's a really interesting situation to be in because if you know if I had my hands on that pot of money. Um, I'll tell you what I'd be doing. I would be, I would be asking really great non-selective um, schools to set up in those selective areas and really force the grammar schools to up their game. If there was a Reach Academy Felton next to Chis and Sid, you'd see some real choice for parents there. And just a little anecdote, and it only started to happen just as I left, but in the last couple of years I was at BFS, I know there are a number of pupils that had offers to go to Bucks Grammar Schools because parents would then move from Bedford to Milton Keynes and then send the kids oh, over the border. Oh, that's Bedford Free School. Just so spell Bedford it out. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bedford, <laughs> Bedford Free School. Yeah, and a few, kids, a, few, <laughs> a few kids that um, had offers to go to the private schools in Bedford and didn't because they felt they'd found a much better alternative. Is, is this what you're advocating? You're advocating that, you know, if we make grammar schools really good, the parents will choose them. And I think both... You mean non-selective Excuse yeah. me, sorry. Yeah. And uh, comprehensive, the parents will choose them. I mean, you, you both said that that's highly unusual and... Really, if you look at statistics on parents choosing grammar schools and even the concerns the parents have over getting their kids into top sets and, and parents are even so concerned about setting it, it just, it sort of beggars belief that, you know, everyone would abandon the grammar and then go to the comprehensive and let I just don't think parents would worry about it so much. Look, I'm going to do my classic cliche now and talk about my four daughters. I've got four daughters. One of the things that spurred me on to open the school was I wanted a really good state school to send my girls to. There's three really great private schools in Bedford. Um, I would never send my kids to independent schools. I respect people's right to do that. Rich people are always going to do that. I don't think, for me, this is where we disagree, probably. Rich people are always going to find their own way to get their kids into what they perceive to be good schools. The question is, how do we get as many great schools out there as possible, which is what parent, in terms of what parents want. And you've never, if people have said 20 years ago, mobile phones can't get any better yeah then we wouldn't be all be sat here now with supercomputers in our hands I don't think it's schools and mobile phone though I think it's I don't think it's it's a fair analogy I mean there is a lot of evidence that shows this is my my mobile phone analogy is going to last okay Um, there's a lot of shows they have massively transformed people's lives mobile phones okay by taking a number of things a number of things which are working elsewhere and put into one place Go and look, as I'm sure you guys have done already, go and look at what some of our outlier non-selective schools are doing and tell me that cannot be replicated in every other school in the country. Not in exactly, not, not in exactly the same way, but we can adopt or adapt those things and make all our schools better. But, but I, sorry, I have to say that it's one thing to say rich people always do what they're going to do and it's one thing to say let's improve non-selective schools, but we've got to look at the role of the state in underwriting those things. So if you look at the, the kind of quite large subsidies that private schools get and the fact that they were all set up for poor scholars and they now cost 33,000 yeah. a year. If you look at the way the state underwrites the 11 plus, I think it's, you know, okay, you're, I agree, you can't stop people paying for their children's education, but I don't see why in a time of austerity when we're closing libraries and cutting back teaching assistance, that money from local business rates is going to private schools. If they are rich, let them educate their children 
on the money that they've got. So that that would be to me a quite an important point. And we will definitely do an episode on private schools as well. But just to stick on um, with with yeah. grammar schools and what we're doing for now, I think what's kind of the, the interesting thing that's been drawn out here is that um, I don't know if I can sort of pin you to this mark, but essentially it sounds in some ways like what you're saying is that the reason that parents still send their children to grammar schools is because they don't think the state school next to them is good enough. Like you wanted a school for your four children to go to that you thought would be a really high quality state school education because there's a risk that it might not be I don't know if you think that's a fair kind of assessment of what you've said but the idea but it, the way that you kind of yeah. frame it, it sounds like basically you want a grammar school style education but in the comprehensive system because it doesn't exist at the moment the, the bet the bet the best thing about having had the chance to open Bedford free school and loads of people that have opened free school say the same school 21 or Dixon's or, or and all those ones. and it's not just free schools okay but yeah, I'm just no, about no, what I, I know best thanks for saying that yeah no 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 absolutely and, it, and you know so yeah. but that's just if you like that's the sector I know best from the last 10 years the great thing about it is you have a chance to think about culture and curriculum. They're the two things, okay? How you do things in your school and what you're going to teach your children. And there's not one way of doing it, but that is fundamentally the thing which transforms children's lives and it isn't, doesn't require you to select the children that come into your school to do that. And I think the real challenge for the left, I remember asking you guys this question before, is if one of the things needed to actually get people to choose comprehensive non-selective schools is giving them more diversity and choice in the system would you be prepared to do it and that's really hard for you guys no I, I, don't, I actually i don't think it is i i've always been pro diversity i have a little problem with choice having seen how parental choice works myself as a parent parental choice at 11 in the active school market in northwest london where i live is basically that the middle class and the rich leave local schools mm. and that the working class get the sink schools so i don't really believe in parental choice or i'm I, I question it um, but I think I think if you look at the history of comprehensive education even when it was within the supposedly <coughs> bad local authority model there was lots and lots of diversity and I think I I would like to see um, I think local government provides a more stable frame and is more logical for local collaboration than semi-private interests even wonderful you know active parents like yourself setting up schools i think it's an inherently fragile model it might last really well and it starts with a great burst but i'm looking it's, at the long term it, it, it sounds really nice doesn't it choice like i, I mean suppose to to use a, a another inappropriate analogy is like, you know go into a shop and you can choose a mars bar or a bounty or whatever it is but when it comes to schools how, how much choice does a parent have i mean is is there a free market in schools and can you get all the information about a school and even in your own situation you you went to a grammar school which was maybe a little bit further away and your brothers or sisters didn't go there and in, in the end it wasn't right for you because it, it was away from your community I have loads of stories from my friends back home who went to because there's quite a severe grammar school in Northern Ireland yeah. a grammar school system and so many of them left their own communities and left the people that they're friends with at primary school and went off to a grammar school and it just wasn't right for them and, and they lost a lot of friendships they didn't know the people there in the first place so really can can you choose a school can you choose to go to a school that's oh, further I, away I or? just think for me it's, we have to have some choice because if I come back to it, the why of education there's five people in this room and we'd all have different views on what the purpose of education is and therefore what we should be doing in schools and hence we have to have diversity and choice is necessary to reflect the parents' fundamental can, human rights. But there are different ways of offering choice. You know, I, I think it, of course we need 
really brilliant schools for all and I completely agree that school culture by which you mean behavior and I don't like the word behavior but I think yeah. positive discipline I was saying any it's a, an expectation and, routines and rituals and, and stimulation yeah. and lots of extracurricular stuff all of that is incredibly important and curriculum is incredibly important as well what worries me about your position the grammar schools for all without actually phasing out the more elite um, institutions in our society is that's going to there's still going to be class and ethnic segregation in this system and I think if you can as you've said create this amazing school then we should encourage all parents to go through one system that is my end goal mm -hmm. a genuine public education system rather than the system we have now which is so segregated and divided and just picking up on one thing you said which i'd be interested to see what you think mark is that one of the issues with grammar schools for all is that grammar schools are kind of known for setting and streaming do you think we should maintain setting and streaming within the mm. kind of comprehensive model because arguably that's just continuing it within the system and lots of people say well that's an essential part of grammar schools is, is a setting and streaming so you've raised a really good point which is what do people like me mean when we talk about grammar schools for actually how you group your students within your individual school i don't have strong views on i moved my school away from setting and streaming to everything being in mixed attainment form groups but other people have different views about what works better in different subjects mm. so that for me is not relevant what is relevant is when you talk to people what they mean by grammar schools and i know this because i you know i knocked on a thousand doors in bedford in 2010 to 2012 to talk to parents and they'd never been asked before what they wanted from a school and the things which came back to them that were really important were all the things actually the cultural things we've just been talking about they wanted a school where kids would have access to loads of sport where there would be high expectations. They wanted a smart uniform. They wanted the school to be strict. They had different views as to what strict meant, but they wanted a strict school where their kids would be safe, where they'd stamp on a stamp out bullying and where they would aim their, help get their children to university or into good jobs. And that's what they associate with when you look at the research and the polling. That's what they associate with grammar schools doing. They never really associate grammar schools with selection. And that's for me where the sweet spot is. Schools like ours and Reach and Dixon's and Greenwich Free School and th that was relevant because they were the new schools having to do this. We have to say to parents, you can have all that. You don't need the selection. And they're starting to prove that. And, and that's it, where the exciting thing is for me. And that's sort of drawing on your why, isn't it? That the kind yeah. of why of what you're talking about is getting all students to university and into good jobs. That's what lots. Of, I'm not saying that's what mm. every parent should do. Uh, like, and you know, if we talk about school 21, they will have a very different view mm. about what they're trying to do, which is why we need diversity. Yeah. Mm. I, I must say, just in terms of models, and I'm not an expert, but I've followed the debate. I'm, I'm more enthused by the School 21 model than I am by the kind of slightly diluted grammar school of old model, which may not be your school. But, but I, mean, I, mean, no, because, I mean, what I find interesting is the EBAC, uh, the five key subjects decided by Michael Gove in his grammar schools for all, um, was exactly the same five subjects that you learnt in a grammar school in 1902. I think there's so <laughs> many... Thing, uh, that, I mean, you came to that debate about the future of education, Mark, that I took part in last week. There's so much happening with AI and new ideas, and I think Oracy, which um, School 21 develops. I've seen 12 and 13-year-olds from that school speak amazingly clearly and passionately about things that they care about. 
those are things that I'm interested in. I mean, I don't know what parents would say if I knocked on the door and said, do you want your child to be able to make a public speech at 12? Probably not, because there's <laughs> such a kind of, you know, there's... So I'm trying to say that, in a way, schools have a responsibility, or educationists have a responsibility to think ahead and innovate and not necessarily move to an agenda that that certainly is underwritten by you know journalists and because um, I do think they play a very big part in the way people see schools we're told grammar schools are good and I and that's because a lot of people who write and broadcast went to them or send their children to and them and I, I suppose another thing might be what teachers opinions as well as of those course, of, sorry, of parents of course. so I, I think yeah. we matter too we have a few ideas about how or <laughs> what we'd like to teach it would be nice if yeah. we got a voice yeah <laughs> and I just Paddy wanted to bring you in on, on uh, what Mark said about the, the culture and because you know Bedford Free School and those other schools have been quite associated with zero tolerance policies haven't they and you're kind of quite an advocate for head teachers having the right to exclude based on we have this high expectation we expect all children to kind of rise to it what would be your perspective as a teacher would that be an attractive thing for our school system as a whole if that's what we're saying or mark is saying grammar schools yeah i mean well i mean obviously no one wants bullying in the school it's horrible (laughs) but i mean there are ways about going about it and you know sure uniform possibly i mean parents might say that they might have gone through that system themselves but have have they really thought about it is it really that important to have a pristine uniform maybe certainly that recently especially with academization there have been a lot of like sort of quick fix solutions are this there's a crap school we need to come in and completely change it and we need to stamp down it could be quite authoritarian quite traumatic for children quite traumatic for teachers as well who are you know told you need to teach this way and maybe they mightn't even if you're talking about choice they might want to go to that school themselves even as teachers but that's the school in their area they have to make money they have to put food on the table for their own kids and, and what say do they have in it so I, I do just alarm bells sort of go off in my head a little bit when uh, I hear say school leaders say okay we're going to change the culture of this school I, I wonder you know how, how much voice do yeah. teachers have in that too but also I'm sure Mark's an advocate of freedom and I think one of the things <laughs> sort of associated change of the last two years is the accountability system and the dictate you know things being dictated down by central government that squeeze freedom out of the entire system I mean it may have Bedford Free School may have been freer but a lot of schools as you're saying are, you know told it's very top down from government to the schools and then within the schools very top down and, and there's there's a lot of rebellion against that now all right well Melissa, okay. we are going to give you the last words but yeah thank you both um so much i think uh, it's been really interesting to draw out some kind of uh, points of unity but also some uh, disagreements and thank you for being such good guests and it hasn't ended up in a punch-up which is good <laughs> so that is a good credit to all of us in the room i think so thank you so much for this discussion if you enjoyed this episode then please do tweet us including any questions or ideas for upcoming episodes thank you paddy mark and melissa thank you thank, thank you, you.